Welcome to the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast with Dr. Fuck and the Ayatollah of Alcohola, Ian Wadley, better known as Wadzilla. So enjoy another awesome, incredible episode of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. Bam, 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 diddly dee. Hey, Schmack and McGob and Bang Man Pizza Skulls, it is a very special Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. With me, Ralph, and... Oh, yeah! Wadzilla, baby. Uh, Wadzilla, we have a very special guest. Why don't you introduce him? Oh, do we? Do we? I, I'm a little starstruck today, I, I gotta admit. Uh, this is somebody that has been a hero of mine since the 90s. Uh, author, YouTube star, uh, yeah. I even think he plays hockey. Martin Popoff is with us today. <laughs> How you doing, Ian? Uh, this yeah. this is very cool. Get getting uh, getting ready to do this. Uh, anytime talking about Master of Reality is uh, definitely a good time. So, oh, I am so excited not only to talk about this album because we're in the midst. We've done some uh, you know fundraisers in the past, so we've been doing all these fan episodes. And God love them! All these people have donated, and and it's it's great that our fan base does that. But holy shit, they've been picking some fucked up albums. And we had to take a break and talk about something we're passionate about. And and to do it with you, holy shit, you know, to talk with you about, you know, Black Sabbath Master Reality. And in my opinion, you wrote the quintessential book on Black Sabbath, uh, Doom Let Loose. Well, well, Ian, let me stop you there for a second. Uh, he, because ex- Doom Let Loose is out of print. But he expanded it. There's two copies out there, right, Martin? That kind of like Doom Let Loose plus more, right? Yes. Essentially, what I did is when it went out of print, it was out of print for a lot of years, and then I, I turned, uh, I, I brought, you know, greatly expanded it and put out. Uh, I've got one of them here because I was looking at my notes. Sabotage Black Sabbath in the '70s and Born Again Black Sabbath in the '80s and '90s, uh, and the idea was, uh, you know turning them both into trade paperbacks they still got some pictures and stuff but it isn't like doom let loose but it's twice the size um in terms of uh you know the the scholarliness of it uh, if you will um but yeah it ends in the 90s or at the end of the 90s because most of my uh heaven and hell band stuff uh is in the black sabbath faq book which is which is still in print so uh, yeah, it just it just stops there at the end of the '90s with these two, you know, more or less trade paperbacks instead of coffee table books, I guess. Yeah, I, I highly recommend them. I mean, because uh, I've always said I've I had a whole channel, my very first YouTube channel where Ian found me uh, was Black Sabbath reviews, and I would reference your book a lot when I would go into each album because it was so detailed, you know about each song and what went behind it and all that and this book expands on that i mean books so i i got them both again and uh you know i always said it on my channel this this is like my bible you know doom let loose you know uh ian you have that book right oh yeah i i bought that right when it came out uh my infatuation with martin goes back to the 90s uh you know, for you know, some of our listeners, there used to be a time before the internet, and I would go to Barnes and Nobles, and you know, at that time, my beloved, you know, hit paraders and you know, circuses and all that stuff, you know, they were going by the wayside. I started buying Kerrang, 
because uh, that was like the best way I could get, you know, my metal scoops back then. And I would always go to the, the book section, too, and see, you know, because I loved reading uh, biographies of, of metal and, and artists and stuff. And I found the Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal. And this thing, oh, my God. It, it is the ultimate, like, shitter book. And by that, I mean I kept it in my bathroom because at all times, I couldn't look at my phone in the bathroom back then. I would sit there and read through this and read through it. And I'd even... I'd highlight the the albums that I have or albums that I heard, and I love the way that Martin wrote because it was very uh, it was informative and it wasn't pretentious. You could tell it was written by somebody who was a fan of this music, you know, who listened to it. And and I really Martin, I, I love the way you write. It just like it, it it's it's very good. And your book. I mean, it's the pages are falling out. I looked the other day to try to get another copy of it, and I, I can't find it. Yeah, yeah, those, those ones definitely did get worn out eventually. But yeah, so that 97 book, uh, you know, in later years got busted into the four decades. So it doesn't right. exist as just that book anymore. There's a 70s edition, an 80s, a 90s, and a 2000s, which I had to co-write with a buddy. And people keep asking me to do, the, do a new one, but... Uh, you know, there's no way I'm going to do the 2010s and stuff because it would be it would need to be a hundred thousand uh, reviews. You know, it'd, it'd be like a six hundred dollar book. Um, I don't have enough lifetimes left to do that. So I'm definitely the 2000s is the end. But even that 2000s book, I wrote half of it and a buddy wrote half of it. And I think that book is six hundred thousand words. So it's uh, it's essentially as much as about eight eight regular size books to, to do that one book. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the end for me for, for record reviews. Pretty much. I'm just doing nope. these. Uh, the one I'm doing right now is actually the second half of the Dio story book. So I, I put out a Dio book last year. It's my most recent book, dream evil Dio in the eighties. And now I'm doing uh killing the dragon Dio in the 1990s and two thousands. Oh, that's great. Yeah. As you know, I did buy a copy of the dream evil book and, uh, we did an episode on it and, uh, a really great read. So yeah, I look forward to it. It ended at Dream Evil, right? The first one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, it'll start with Lock Up the Wolves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right on. Well, uh, is there any new books that you just released recently? Yeah, the, the latest couple of things. The David Bowie book just came in. Um, so that's the most nicest book anybody's ever done for me. It's it's through my my U.S. publisher Motor Books, and it's got like a. Uh, a, a plastic uh, slip cover with screen printing and this kind of fuzzy fur felt stuff on it. A um, couple of fold-out pages and a print in it and all this. It's kind of expensive, but uh, I got my stash in of those a month early. And uh, the Angel book is back in print. So I've got the Angel book now, which was out of print for a long time, called The Fortune uh, on the Rocks with Angel. So those are, those are the latest two. Yeah, you, you did show on uh, my channel the the David Bowie book and it was yeah. very well like a lot of pictures and you were explaining how that's them that do that they, they're the ones that get the right yeah. all those pictures all yeah. you do is add the text yeah exactly it, may, it makes my job super easy and they, they're gorgeous gorgeous layouts from those guys right on so everybody check out the link below I mean and I'll add a, a link to how you can uh, to all Martin's books there go to the site and check it out because he's got a plethora of, of uh, books out there that <clears throat> of every 
of almost every band you can think of. And uh, so, so Ian, want to get into it? You have something for Martin. Well, uh, well, yeah, I, I do. But I, there's still, there's some other Martin books I would love to uh, uh, talk about. Contents Under Pressure, your Rush book. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of that. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult Secrets Revealed. I love that. Oh, I was so excited when that came out. Uh, where you go through the songs, you know, not just the albums, but the songs of Blue Oyster Cult. And I was just blown away that somebody besides me cared that much about Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, I mean, you, ju- you just have many, many books that I encourage everybody to go out. Is it is it hard in this day and age of the Internet? Is it harder now uh, to get people to buy books when they feel like they can go on Wikipedia or, uh, you know, find information out on the Internet? Yeah, I mean, possibly. I haven't really, really noticed that, but um, it's it's totally true. If you want to, if you want to learn about any of these bands, you could just read and read and read for quite a long time all over the internet and and gather up the same sort of knowledge. I suppose people want breaks away from their screens. I suppose as well too. But uh, and the, I guess the other thing is. Um, you know, back when I started doing these things, there weren't a lot of books on heavy metal, and and you know that that's turned into like a hockey stick uh, graph more or less. There's lots and lots and lots of books on bands, so you know even even if it's not the same band, you're still competing with people wanting to read other rock books by other people all the time. So so that's that's something that's definitely changed. I mean, it's it's very surprising all the time. You know what bands actually have a book out on them? Many many do. Awesome. Well, I encourage anybody, you know, get get his books. You know, he does one on a band you love. Get it because they're all very well written, very informative. And uh, what I thought I'd, I'd do, Martin, is is do some five questions. This is Wikipedia fact or fiction. I tried to do a deep internet dive on you, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of lies on the internet. You know. <laughs> But there's also some truth, and you know, fuck, I have you here now. I gotta find out what's what. So, first and foremost, uh, you know, let, let's see if this is correct at all. I have that you were born Martin Aloysius Popoff, April 28, 1963, in Castlegar, British Columbia. Yeah, everything except the Aloysius part. <laughs> really? Uh, oh. yeah, it's it's Harry in the middle. That's my dad's name. Uh, see, now this scares me because now I have no idea if these next five questions are factual or not. But You actually here, saw here. that somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah, it's the internet. Oh, that's it's hilarious. It's <laughs> the internet. It, it was on Breitbart. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> all right, first question. Uh, says that in high school, you were fired from your school newspaper for an April Fool's joke gone bad where you gave rainbows down to earth a 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah, that, that's false, of course, but uh, I definitely give uh, give that album a 10 out of 10. It is my favorite rainbow album, and I, I oh. often wind up in arguments uh, with uh, with that one. Yeah, with Ian. Because Ian's not a fan of that one. Okay, so there, there, there is some truth, and there's some lies in there. I, I got a feeling we're going to run into that a lot here. Okay, uh, number two. You lost your virginity at age 18 with the Merch Girl at an April Wine concert on the Nature of the Beast tour. 
No, that's definitely false. I'll tell you a funny April wine story though. Um, th this this is uh, this is actually true, which is which is crazy. So uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it short because I've, I've I've told this story a few times. But in grade twelve. Uh, and you know this has a little bit of a virginity uh, aspect to it, but not really. But in great, uh, not not grade twelve when we were about, yeah, when I was twelve, we had a a uh, school dance in my basement after school one time, where you know you, you, we had about I don't know ten, 10 kids, you know five girls, five boys type thing, right? Uh, over after school. Um, but my buddy Forrest Toop and me, we would uh, we would actually go to the dump and rummage through the dump sometimes, the town dump, right? And uh, so we get there, and uh, and right uh, right at the front, you know, before you go up the the sandy hills to get to the dump, there was this pristine box uh, just sitting there of uh, probably about uh, let me see two maybe two inches thick of uh, April Wine 1974 four tour posters. Just, just like obviously, some guy was supposed to hang all these up around town or the Kootenays where I where I grew up, right in rural British Columbia, and did and didn't do his job or whatever, right? Um, and uh, and we thought, okay, high school dance coming up, so so we took we took all those back um, to my my basement where we were doing this. We 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 covered all the walls all the way around, including cutting out for you know the light fixtures and the plugs. With this, with this scary, actually, it, it looks like Master of Reality. Actually, it's it's black and purple. This, the, it's the cover of April Wine Live. If you can picture that, that that '74 album or whatever it is. Um, but it's a really nice tour poster, and uh, cover. So, so the basement looked completely rad. It looked like Master of Reality, and uh, and so this is what we had for this uh, this dance. But the the other cool thing about this dance is another buddy of ours, Bobby Davidson, rushes in halfway through after being downtown, you know, holding above his head a copy of Kiss Alive. Um, you know, we are already huge Kiss fans already by this time. We knew everything and had all the previous stuff. Um, but I, I, I picture us, I, I totally remember we dogpiled him as he held this album aloft. And then the cellophane got ripped off and then, you know, then it's pull out all the parts and we're playing it on the stereo and stuff. And that was it. The dance was over. You know, the girls silently filed out, went home. And, you know, we, I remember all of us looking up eventually, where'd everybody go kind of thing. So it turned into a Kiss Alive listening party at uh, in <laughs> 1975 at 12 years old. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's my big April wine story. <laughs> wow. So... You did bang the merch girl at April Wine, or you didn't? <laughs> no, that didn't happen. Oh, okay. Ah, shit. The story was oh. kind of close. <laughs> I know, I, I know. It, it's getting scary here. I'm looking at the rest of these questions. Okay, uh, next one. Uh, always being a, a budding writer, in 1984, you dipped your toes in songwriting when you taught Helix lead singer Brian Vollmer how to spell rock for the song <laughs> Rock You. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that one is true. No, it's not true. But I, <laughs> does everybody know the uh, the the Trailer Park uh, Boys episode yes. with all that in it? Yeah, that that was awesome, eh? Yeah. Um, love Brian Vollmer. Actually, they were one of the earlier bands I saw live. I, I saw them in uh, when I was in university in in BC. So I saw them around. Oh, when was that? Wouldn't that have been? I, I don't know. Maybe that was just after the first major label one came out. But yeah, great guys. Uh, you know, when I moved to Ontario, eventually met Brian. Brian's an amazing guy, and and he's he's one of these Ronnie James Dio like 
consummate singers who teaches singing and does it properly and that's why he's so good but that that's a really good live band too those guys were like really athletic you think of the scorpions right the way they they do their thing and these guys are all over the place coordinated and looking looking like priests you know dressed up like priests those guys did a really really good job live are they still around yeah, but it's uh, you know it's they they play around here and the band is is down to you know one or two or three members kind of, not even three members I don't think they they did the other cool thing is Tim Henderson and I we did the Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles magazine with uh, they had one of these uh, really nice theater hometown reunion shows and we went out for that and and they had lots of the old members together and we got all our stuff signed and, and stuff so that was cool too. Oh, I did well, go I them once with. Uh... Except and Keel. Wow. 86, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, man, that, that, by the way, by the way, guys, I mean, as a little bit of homework, have you guys heard that old, you know, pre-fame song of theirs called Billy Oxygen? No. Check uh, it out. Go, play it on the internet. It's it's a kind of like a, a really cool heavy metal epic. You know, it reminds me of a little bit of like Hedy's Never Been Any Reason, Bohemian Rhapsody, Ram Jam, Black Betty, it's kind of that sort of song, right? It's got uh, this neat level of novelty to it, but it's, uh, and it's heavy. It's really cool, beautifully recorded and performed, but Helix had two albums before they signed to Capitol, and this is off of one of them. I think it's the second one. But yeah, check it out on the on YouTube. It's called Billy Oxygen is the name and, of the song. And, the band, and, and they were called Helix by that. Yeah, it's still Helix, uh, okay. but, it's, but it's when they were on H&S Records, you know, they, their kind of indie label before that. But it, it does not sound like an indie song. It, it, it will remind you a little bit of Ram Jam Black Betty, I think. Okay. Uh, well, I got to say that, that that's a little disappointing to find out you didn't write that because I thought, you know, it's credited uh, Bob Holligan Jr., uh, yeah. you know, wrote some songs with uh, Judas Priest and stuff. And I just thought that was a, a, a pseudonym, like like Alan Smithy is with directors. Yeah, they yeah. wanted to dismiss what they did. But okay. on a serious note, Ian, on a serious note, like people, people often think that I was, uh, people, this is one of those myth things. People often think I was around writing in the 80s and stuff. Um, and, and you know, they say, oh, I used to read read about you in Kerrang! and whatnot, right? Um, and that really, that, that didn't happen. I didn't start until the, the indie version of Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, which was Rift Kills Man in 93. So that's when I started doing it. So I was already 30 years old, right? Um, I'd already had a BA and an MBA. Um, I was working with Xerox at the time. Actually, I'd quit by that point. We had our own kind of little company thing going. But basically, I started with that indie book in 93. Uh, and then in 94, I met Tim Henderson, and that's when he was breaking away from Meat Magazine here in uh, in Canada. And he was running the, the, the biggest flagship HMV heavy metal department in downtown Toronto, and uh, basically at the busiest intersection of all of Canada. Um, and uh, and so he started, he first called it Tim Bits, and then quickly it became Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. And that's when one of my first interviews ever was uh, Geezer Butler uh, b back at that time. Wow. In fact, my, my first big, my first interview actually for anything was uh, Trent Reznor at the height of his fame for uh, for that second album of his, uh, the, the Fragile or whatever it's called, uh, or no, what what's you know the the kind of goldy looking one. Anyways, he was absolutely at his peak, and it was the first interview I ever did, and I was nervous as hell doing it, of course, right? Because I was kind of intimidated, right? Um, 
so yeah, so that was for Livewire magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers that one, but that was a oh, full yeah. color magazine from the from the mid nineties, right? Well, you, you think you're nervous? At least you had a BA. I mean, you know, Ralph and I both have an STD, but uh, you know, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't carry as much weight. Yeah. All right. Well, this one. Okay, I gotta get something right here. I gotta get something right. Uh, says in 1986, you were arrested at a Tim Hortons restaurant when you were caught doing coke in the bathroom with the killer dwarves during a stop on their stand tall tour. Yes, yes. No, ne- never done coke. In fact, I think I've seen coke once <laughs> ever over in the corner of a hotel room. I, I so I've never done coke, but and the killer dwarves is a is a funny one. I think those guys this happens sometimes with these bands. I think one or two of those guys might have seen a, a not so great review I've written of their stuff and they don't like me. Uh, that happened with Miles Goodwin from April Wine, by the way, too. I, at one at one point backstage, he had seen some reviews and uh, and was kind of hostile towards me. But uh, and, and you can always tell an American when they call Tim Hortons a restaurant because it's not really a restaurant. It's more like a well, I guess I, it sort of is, but it's it's more like a coffee shop with donuts. And, and they eventually added some stuff. It's more it's more like a more like a Starbucks, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, well, here in America, we call Applebee's a restaurant. We have a very low standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, geez, did you at least smoke a joint with Coney Hatch? I mean, help me out here. Ah, well, I've I've uh, <laughs> smoked a few joints in my time, but uh, but not with Coney Hatch. I definitely met those guys later. I've interviewed all those guys. I've seen them live. Actually, I saw them live in their in their vintage days. I saw them live in Spokane, Washington, backing up Priest. I think it was uh, in '82, maybe the Screaming for Vengeance tour. That that band is an amazing band. But yeah, I know I know all those guys. Super guys. Wow. All right. Well, last question. Hopefully, you know, I land something here. And uh, what's weird about this is I got in trouble for this exact same thing. But but let's see if, if this is really true. On September 12th, 2001, you were asked to step down from your magazine, Brave Worlds and Bloody Knuckles, after you posted a photo on MySpace of Van Hagar's 5150 next to a picture of planes flying into the train towers with the caption saying, America, you know why. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's a nice one. That's a, that's a good one. But no, but I do I do have a 9-11 story. Um, on 9-11, I interviewed Bruce Dickinson um, on the phone, right? So so um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this exactly right. But literally, literally about two hours after all that happened, uh, I was on the phone interviewing Bruce Dickinson, and we did our usual. Boy, that's a big deal. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So, what's going on in your solo career, right? You know, it, it literally was like that. So, uh, so yeah, the, the the interviews went ahead on that day, and and you can see that in uh, in a few of my books. You know, I've I've done various Iron Maiden books, but uh, you know, I I do I do mention that that uh, that fact. So yeah, I remember seeing that all on on uh, you know TV in the morning, and then like. Two three hours later, it was eleven or noon or something like that. I'm I'm on the phone with Bruce Dickinson. Wow, you know you know what was odd about nine eleven too was uh, Dream Theater released a live album. Yeah, where it yep. showed uh, an apple with fire, and you see the twin towers uh, yep. in, the, in the fire, and that was released on nine eleven, which was very very yep. 
coincidental. Well, I've also well, posted pictures, and I, I even wrote this for Record uh, Record Review Magazine before, where I've got um, all these different versions of uh, Slayer God Hates Us All, right? Where, yeah, where right. they were they were you know changing labels constantly, and it kept getting delayed. So I've got all these weird promo you know burn cds and and with all these dates on them and stuff but but it had a uh, september 11th 2001 release date and i've got that ticket stub that says that um you know it's it's kind of a faux ticket stub that's got that date on it you know slayer god hates us all wow well you know actually i i still went to best buy and bought god hates us all on september 11th i mean wow all this all this shit happened while i was at work and i remember I was in Florida at the time, and there was people in the in the middle of the streets, like handing out special editions of the newspaper, updating people on what's going on. Wow. And you know, it was a tragedy. But you know, I still went to Best Buy and bought Slayer. <laughs> and when I finally yeah. got home, my girlfriend at the time was like, "Where have you been? Oh my God, it's gonna be World War." III. I'm like, "The new Slayer came out." Yeah. <laughs> You know? Wow, interesting. So, so it, so it was ready to go in the stores, and it did. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, yes, it was released on September 11th. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I physically bought it on September 11th. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Martin, I'm, a, I'm a little disappointed that the internet led me astray on this. I think we could all agree that Sammy Hagar is responsible for 9/11. Yeah, oh. I suppose so. Yeah, we've done a lot yeah. of video shows, and and yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of. Uh, S- Sammy is not the most well liked guy in Van Halen. That's that's for sure. I think we can all agree on that. No, no, yeah. and, and he's not even as macho as Gary Sharon. Right. <laughs> well, G- Gary Gary had some stage moves that were a little questionable. I I definitely remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember uh, a review of uh, his stage performance where Freddie Mercury once said, fag. Um, oh. don't, don't quote me on that, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I saw them, uh, I saw Extreme um, Headline and Saigon Kick was the support act. I love Saigon Kick. And they so they played Massey Hall, which is our, our kind of, you know, uh, really nice theater in, in, in Toronto, you know, the, the sort of 2200 seater. And yeah, it was uh, it was Saigon Kick and Extreme, and yeah, yeah. Gary Sharon had a kind of an effeminate stage manner to him, didn't he? Yeah, you know, Saigon Kick are local boys down here. Yeah, and, and I saw them at a, a high school battle of bands. They were called Toy Soldier. Wow. This was prior to Saigon Kick. Yeah, that that was a great band. Uh, yeah, the Lizard. Great. If you like the Lizard? I thought that was a fantastic album. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I, I think I might have featured them. I think I had them in my. Um, uh, I just did an episode of my podcast, History and Five Songs. Uh, I did Grunge from Away, but I didn't include them in that. I think I included them in the psychedelic 90s metal episode, or at least I name checked them. I did an episode where it was all about these bands that are. I, I, I also have been threatening to do an episode called uh, Norwegian Wood Metal. <laughs> which is all about uh you know every time every band thinks uh thinks uh that they're they're really intellectual by by doing psychedelic beatles uh melodies in the in their stuff you know def leppard doc and all of them did it right uh at a certain time when they were trying to figure out are we going to try be a grunge band or or whatever and they always get it mixed up with uh no we gotta we gotta put norwegian wood parts into this stuff <laughs> well it's, we had an interview with the guitar player from uh from Saigon Kick, and you know he kn- he knew about our show, and you know knew we have you know lowbrow humor and stuff like that. And he said, "Look, you know, 
everything's, you know, you can ask me anything, but don't bring up the fact that I was in Saigon Kick. Oh. Uh, <laughs> true story. Nice. True story. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Martin, thank you very much. You're a very good sport. Uh, I appreciate you settling all these uh, questions about your uh, dubious past. Yeah, and, and uh, we appreciate you didn't hang up on us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ralph, Ralph was actually warned that, you know, after talking with me, you might not come on his show again. Yeah, you know, yeah. Martin, I was speaking with a friend and I said, you know, I didn't know what Ian was going to ask you. And my, fr my friend said, you know, Martin might never come on your YouTube channel again after talking to you. You know what, guys? I'm I'm so low tech. It would probably take me three or four minutes to figure out how to hang up uh, on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Well, so you well, want to get the review, Ian? Yeah, but but for, I I just again I want to thank you, Martin. I am a huge fan, and uh, it means a lot that you know you went along with the jokes. And I implore all of our listeners, man, check out these books. You know, however you get them, uh, Martin, you have a website you can buy directly from, correct? Yes. Yeah, martinpopoff.com. I mean, basically, more than half my income every year is me being a mail order guy of my own books. So, yeah, so any books that are in print, I buy my own stash of them and sign them and ship them out here from uh, from Toronto. Do you, do you have to go to the post office? No, um, I have... Uh, for a long time, there are these various kinds of mailing houses, um, and I use a mailing house that, you know, the key thing about them is they have a way to use uh, American uh, U.S. media mail rates. So when I'm when I'm shipping to the States, which is most of my customers, um, I, I have, you know, much better rates than having to send a, as international. So, you know, basically every two, three days I, uh, I take, uh, you know, I don't know, what is it? between six and 15 packages or whatever, uh, all, all ready to go all to one place. And I just drop them off when I have a new book out, you know, sometimes that could be 30 or 40, uh, packages all, all in a day and then 30, 40 more the next day kind of thing. But, but normally, yeah, it, it's, I, I can just use a mailing house these days. And, and I gotta say, I mean, every, every book I order from Martin, I just get them days later. You know, even though you send them from Canada, I get them really fast. Yeah, it's not a, that's not a promise because, you know, they, they can anything can happen with the mail, especially right. these days. There was a lot of crazy stuff going on. And, yeah, the rates are changing all over. And my my overseas rates, uh, some of them are really, really bad now. And I have to I have to, I have to tell certain countries, oh, no, you're going to have to send me eight or ten more bucks kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. Oh, man. <clears throat> so so, Martin, what, how did you discover um, Master Reality, was it your first Black Sabbath album or did you know them prior to that? Wow, that's really interesting. I would say, um, because I really don't know the answer. So I would say, so I would have been nine uh, when this came out and already slowly getting into music in a big way. I mean, I already had, you know, your, my start was weirdly with like Steppenwolf Gold and Three Dog Night and CCR. I remember the Columbia Record Club thing. But I, you know, I think the first heavy stuff I ever heard, it might have actually been Zeppelin 4. So 71, um, you know, there was there was definitely maybe a deep purple in there. But I think for Sabbath, um, possibly the first Sabbath album. Actually, yeah, I think this is what happened. My buddy Forrest Toop again, the other guy who was, was a raging metalhead like me this early, came back from like a family vacation. I think he either had 
Black Sabbath one and and Master of Reality at the same time. I don't know how Paranoid gets in there, but I remember Volume Four was the first one I particularly bought, and I'm pretty sure that was as a new release, so that would have been '72. So I would have been, yeah, then I would have been nine. So Master of Reality, I would have been eight. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a little filmy the history there, but you know, definitely by nine years old, you know, we were me and my buddies were were Black Sabbath fans. Right on. How about you, Ian? When was the first time you heard of Master Reality? Um, I would say probably around. 86 87 uh you know because i initially got i got into ozzy with ultimate sin you know my age um and then i went back i i knew he was in black sabbath and going through my dad's record collection i found volume four and i just thought it was the coolest record because it was a gatefold and you had the you know he had the original pressing with the pictures in it and you would turn it and like slowly i started well not too slowly actually i started going away from ozzy's solo stuff and getting more into black sabbath and i still am to this day much more into black sabbath than ozzy's solo career um this was probably i would say the second or third black sabbath album that i picked up after you know i i put on my dad's record of volume four fell in love with that and then I was like, oh, I got to get more Sabbath. And I think I went, uh, I want to say this is my second. And then I went to the Dio era and got uh, Heaven and Hell. Uh, but it just, it blew me away. I, it, it's perfect fucking music. It, it's, it's so heavy and it stands up to this day. And, you know, it, it makes a lot of other stuff that I was listening to at the time just seem so juvenile you know and, and kitty rock uh it, this is the heavy it's heavy upon heavy it, it's simplistic yet complex uh it's 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 just fucking black sabbath man original I'll, black I'll, sabbath I'll, I'll tell you a stupid volume four story so so when we got volume four uh you know in our town or whatever like the first copy that i ever had um you know, we, we spent our whole 70s, essentially, thinking, well, there's some sort of weird politics going on in this band. I guess Tony and Geezer are the most important guys in this band because our volume four was missing the uh, the internal extra pages. So you only had wow. the gatefold where you had Geezer on one side and Tony on the other side. And, and we that was our volume four that I knew way up into like the 80s sometime. <laughs> Right and thought, oh, that's kind of weird. There are only pictures of these two guys here. I guess they're the most two two most important guys in this band. <laughs> and then later on, I think some gatefolds, when when it was was lazy again and they didn't have the pages, would would use that um, you know back shot live shot in it, right? And, instead, but uh, yeah, originally it had a page each for the four guys. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of looked like Bill Ward didn't matter since Ozzy was on the cover, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was weird. Yeah, what a weird cover too, right? Yeah, yeah. That you know, um, I think I read this in your book, Martin. Was it true that because uh, of that album cover, uh, uh, Tony made Ozzy stand on the side of the stage, and he wanted to be in the center of the stage? I, think- I don't. I I don't remember that story. But uh, you know, I I always uh, I always like uh, you know just just cheekily complain to people that it's that you know because because no you know because of that stupid title, no one knows how to type it, how to say it. It's just Vol 4 without even a dot, right? Yeah. Yeah, crazy. 
So, um, well, Ian, I got to say, if it wasn't for your dad, most of the people I know that are younger than Martin and myself, uh, they got into Black Sabbath through Speak of the Devil. Uh, and a lot of them prefer the Speak of the Devil versions and the Black Sabbath version because basically the timeline's everything, you know? But Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I discovered it, like, maybe, like, 79, 80, after I got... Um, we sold our souls for rock and roll, which was the first Sabbath album I owned, though my brother did own Paranoid before that, that I just started buying everything from Black Sabbath because of We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, except for Sabotage, because I didn't think Sabotage was good because it only had Am I Going Insane Radio on it. So I was... <laughs> and plus it had that weird album cover that I, I really... It wasn't until like 81, 82 where I finally heard Sabotage that when I, I I heard Symptom of the Universe on Speak of the Devil, and I was like, wait a second, that that's really heavy. And then, yeah, Sabotage is, I know it's Martin's favorite, it may be my second favorite, but it fluctuates between Sabotage, Sabotage Volume 4, and, and Sabotage is my favorite. And sometimes even Master Reality and the first one, you know, but that's how I, I think I bought, I bought Master Reality through the strength of Sweet Leaf, Children of the Grave, and I think after Forever was on uh, We Sold Our Souls. I may be wrong, but uh, that's how I discovered it. So, so Martin, since you are a special guest, why don't you go into this, the first track? What do you think of Sweet Leaf? Love Sweet Leaf. It's uh, it's probably my least favorite of all the heavy songs on this on this album. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, a few trivia things. Of of course, uh, that that's Tony Iommi's cough there being recorded that interesting way. And this is this is all from these um, these sweet Afton cigarettes. Geezer talks about how they you know they came back from a gig in du Dublin and there were these sweet Afton cigarettes. And he says it's the sweetest leaf that gives you taste. But I kind of looked that up again and I couldn't find that tagline anywhere. But I but I did notice that. Um, there's a there's a Robbie Burns poem called Sweet Afton, um, which uh, which this is named after. But yeah, pretty pretty cool song, excellent song. Um, you know, uh, a a very smart guy on Wikipedia uh, named Martin Popoff is quoted there in the Stoner Rock uh, <laughs> section on Wikipedia saying that Sweet Leaf is the start of Stoner Rock, right? Um, and uh, and you know, I I do kind of believe that. And I actually just uh, just coincidentally, purely coincidentally. Um, my next episode of um, of history and five songs with Martin Popoff, uh, you know, which will go up on Tuesday, is uh, is uh, called "The Birth of Stoner Rock." And so I, I think uh, I, I read that when I was <laughs> doing my research, saying, "Oh, look, there, there's me." Um, but but I I totally actually kind of believe that still um, that 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 song is. Um, people say that about this album because of the down tuning and stuff that it's the birth of stoner rock and which is kind of cool you know they're not picking the first album or or paranoid or or anything else they they are saying this album is the birth of stoner rock which is kind of cool so so yeah it's um it is it is kind of the most sluggish and slowest and it's one of those where um where uh you know people make that accusation of ozzy with his vocal melodies you know his his crutch is going to uh you know following along with the riff blah 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 so it's a little bit of uh, of one of those um but yeah love it to death super heavy song and uh but yeah probably my least favorite of of all the heavy songs oh interesting how about you ian oh i i fucking love it that riff holy shit 
Yeah, that's heavier than Andrew Jacobs' wife. Uh, he and, had, that's uh, a side joke. <laughs> <laughs> and, and those drums. Oh, my God. How, I still, to this day, do not understand how he's not in the same conversation as, as John Bonham. Uh, it's just insane. I, I don't know. Bill Ward is like the, the John Paul Jones. You know, like the least talked about member, the least respected member, uh, but yet so vital to the sound. And holy shit, what I love, you got almost like a dueling drum and guitar solo in this going on at the same time. And what a way to open up the album. Uh, you know, I always talk about, you know, the first song's got to grab you and the last song's got to leave you wanting more. And... I can't think of a better way. And yeah, I, this is probably more so than the first two albums, the prototype of uh, stoner rock, stoner metal, uh, even heavy metal period. The way that, you know, certain songs are detuned on this, you know, the first time they're doing that, it just gives it that heavier, fatter, chunkier sound and, and just a bulldozer, you know, it's, you know, and, and it's a, a pro pod song, you know. I used to smoke pot like the kids do nowadays and stuff, you know? I, I used to be into that. And I, I'd like to get high and listen to this shit, man. Great fucking song. Great opener. Yeah. Just just, just to mention, just uh, on an academic level, I mean, I did look at a, a YouTube video. And uh, so apparently, yeah, this, this album is, it's down-tuned one and a half steps. Tony did it first. Um, basically to to uh, lessen the pain in his you know his his finger situation being cut off uh, but then found you know it was a heavier sound and then geezer followed um, so we've got we've got like e to c sharp a to f sharp g to e e to b d i guess to c sharp b to g g sharp kind of thing right uh, and it's and this one guy in the youtube thing called this uh, c sharp dorian wow yeah <clears throat> Uh, Ian said it best too. Uh, for me, I mean, Ian and I both, our favorite drummer is uh, Bill Ward. And what Bill Ward does during the solo, the craziness of his playing on it is just sporadic and it does fit well. Uh, I really love this song. I think uh, just the, the fuzziness, the, the heaviness, the down tuning, it really does set the, the mood for this album though. Uh, it gets faster than this. It, it is odd that it starts with kind of a slower uh, type song, which you would hear faster tempo songs on here. But um, I absolutely love this song. I think it's it's perfect. Uh, After Forever, Martin, what do you think of that one? Yeah, love after forever. Love that that ethereal, weird. You know, you're dying and going going up the up the tunnel to the bright light and, uh, intro to it. You know, kind of kind of weirdly creepy, creepily melodic, and then it then it bursts into those killer killer chords. And this one's groovier and a little more up tempo. And you know, the scario. Would you like to see the Pope on the end of a rope and all that stuff? So this is Geezer and his conflicted Catholicism, right? Um, so it's essentially, uh, you know, a, a song about religion. Um, and it's uh, it's it's kind of more or less pro-religion, right? Um, kind of thing, like warning you against evil, which is kind of cool. But yeah, so this is uh, this is definitely, you know, 
Oddly enough, I, I guess uh, out of the five heavy songs on this album, this is uh, this is the deepest track in a way. But all these songs are pretty famous. But uh, yeah, absolutely killer, super heavy song. And yeah, I, I agree with you guys on on Bill Ward. I don't think my praise would go as high as yours is, except in one department. I think Bill Ward is a solo artist. Those three solo albums he did are absolute masterpieces. Um, so to me, I'm I'm almost. I'm almost more like like a like a crazy Bill Ward fan because I think he's like a songwriting genius, uh, which we don't see until those you know when the bow breaks and um, and uh, what, what is that last one called? Accountable beasts and Ward one along the way, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I love that. But yeah, it, and I forgot about that solo section in, in Sweet Leaf. That that is really cool that it, that he he decides to do that <laughs> in the in the solo section. But yeah, big fan of After Forever. Do you think do you think uh, Geezer uh, wrote those lyrics kind of like because uh, of the backlash of them being satanic that he did like pretty much a pro uh, religious song? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's it's a truly response that way. I think it's just him and his internal, uh, you know, turmoil about all this, right? And there's the story about, I can't remember exactly, it's in my book, but I, I think he painted his whole bedroom black at one point, and then he, he claims that, that, that he was, uh, you know, beset by a little bit of paranormal paranormalness uh, in his life as well. Um, so I, I think it's still the internal thing at this point. I, I don't think, um, you know, I, it, it's later on when... when um, it, it, you know, I, I, these guys are really creeped out. Uh, it, it, the, the stories are funny, like when they go to America, and that's when they really get creeped about, you know, witches following them around and 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 treating them like uh, like some sort of demon gods or whatever. But at, at this point, I think it's just all happening just because of his own turmoil. Right. Yeah. The funny story. The uh, a funny story I read was there was a bunch of Satanists in cloaks that showed up at their hotel with candles and Ozzy walked out and blew all the candles out and sang happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I remember reading that. What do you think of After Forever, Ian? Uh, well, first of all, um, I just want to say how awesome it is that you and I are not the only ones under the, under the influence at this early hour in the day for Martin <laughs> to say he's more of a fan of, of Bill's solo career than what he did in the band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know what you're on, Martin, but keep it up. Well, uh, I, I, I I gotta say I have not heard the later stuff, but as you recall, Ian, on a past episode, recent episode, my pick of the week was Ward One. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I do like that. Do you guys yeah, both I, have access to Spotify? Uh, no. Well, I don't. Do you? Uh, I, I can get whatever I need. Anyway. <laughs> Bill's last album, Accountable Beast, is one of the rarest albums you could possibly get in terms of trying to get like a, a physical copy of it. It was so weirdly released. It's almost like a mirage. But for some reason, that one is on Spotify. But but I, hopefully you can go hear that stuff on YouTube. But play that Accountable Beast album. I, I, I always call him the Roger Waters of heavy metal. It is the weirdest, coolest thing. Um, just the, the songwriting, his vocals, his lyrics really really interesting stuff i i would check it out all right well, well i I've, I've heard a little bit i i do have the album not a physical copy but i do have a digital copy and okay. uh that, that's a horrible thing to say about roger waters uh <laughs> I, I don't i don't know maybe, maybe i have to listen to it again uh but i i, I heard a little bit i was like eh, no no well, i i gotta hear i i gotta say i thought ward one was very eclectic 
Yep. And it's cool. Been, yep. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome, awesome album. It's all over the place, but I think it's a really and yeah, I can see uh the Roger Waters like connection with uh the weirdness of Ward One. I, I play that all the time. I think it's a phenomenal album, but for some reason I never really listened to the other two because you know it's it's very hard to get, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I see the Roger Waters connection as where uh, David Gilmore hates Bill Ward, too. <laughs> uh, but uh, get into After Forever. Uh, man, if Striper had balls, uh, <laughs> it'd be something like this. Striper uh, this song, by the way. Did you know that? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, I refuse to listen to it. Um, but uh, I would have to say, much like what Martin said with uh, Sweet Leaf, this is my least favorite of the actual, you know, the fully fleshed songs. And I love this fucking song. And that's a testament to how solid this fucking album is. Um, but, man, you want to talk about dangerous lyrics. This could lead somebody to Christianity. I mean, this is far worse than, uh, you know, those Judas Priest songs that'll make you blow your head off. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, again, just uh, what a solid song, and it is weird for a band. You know, your name is Black Sabbath. You you have this imagery and all this stuff. It is a very pro Christian song, uh, you know, and that's kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, but I, I I love it. It's awesome. Saying that this is my least favorite again is just a testament to how amazing uh, this is. Love it. It's, uh, it, I would call it a deep cut though. Uh, I don't think this got a lot of attention until like the later years, you know, when they do the, the Sabbath tribute albums. I believe Biohazard might have covered this one. Uh, if yes, I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, I never saw him play it live or anything like that. I, you know, it's, it, I don't think you see it on any of the live albums, but great fucking song. It's just, it's Sabbath through and through. But uh, also uh, something to point out is on the original U.S. pressing, uh, you know, there's listed like a like an instrumental section. And I found out they used to do this for Warner Brothers because uh, contractually they had to have a certain number of songs. So, uh, you know, little instrumental beginnings or instrumental endings would be listed as a separate song. And this one is Elegy. I believe is included in this one. And that yeah, was... I'm, I'm just looking in the back of my my uh, sabotage book. So yeah, this one has the elegy. Children of the Grave has the haunting. Um, there's right. step up between Orchid and Lord of This World, and number four, a listing for Death Mask before Into the Void. Right, and and that was you know again they had to have so many songs for the album, but I, I missed. We've talked about this in nauseam on the show, and I think Martin would agree. Uh, this era, I loved what the vinyl format con constricted these bands of. You know, you only had so much time, so it's it's pretty much an all killer, no filler kind of thing. And then when you get into the CD age, you know, not only are bands taking longer in between albums and feel like they're doing you a favor by maxing it out, but they're really not. You know, they're. So many albums are lessened by their length. When if you just trimmed all the fat, you would get more albums like this that are just so fucking solid. Um, 
I absolutely, I, I do love this song, but it would be my least favorite. What do you think, Ralph? Yeah, I, I will say going back to me, uh, every time I released an album, I made sure it went nowhere near 40 minutes. Cause I, I just like a condensed short album like I grew up on, the six pack with Van Halen, the early Sabbath albums. You know, a little over 30 minutes to me is enough. You know, cause uh, when you go over that, then you do add fat. And you're right, I don't think there's any fat on here. Uh, but yeah, I, I love After Forever. It's uh, it's a little different than, um, it, you know, like like what Martin's saying with the, with the beginning, that weird noise, like going up to the light. And then it has almost a joyous type of riff coming in, but then it gets really heavy. And yeah, the lyrical content is total left field for Black Sabbath up to that point, because before that it was, you know, I am Lucifer, take my hand, and you know, and, and stuff like uh, War Porgies, the original lyrics to, to War Pigs that I believe was denied by Warner Brothers, or was it, uh, were they on Warner Brothers, or was it Vertigo at that point? Um, I think they were on Vertigo. Yeah, Vertigo is your UK label, and Warner Brothers is your like US arrangement. Okay. Kind of, kind of a distro. Well, you're on Warner, but it's that that's your distro right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, next one is uh, it's Embryo, right? Yep. Uh, what do you yes. think? Uh, this short, which is always played live before Children of the Grave. But what do you think of Embryo, Martin? Well, um, one of the cool things is this entire side of, of music, uh, it only has under one minute of, uh, of mellow music on it, which is which is kind of neat. I mean, this is a really heavy side of Black Sabbath, but um, so it's so it's kind of renaissance. -y. It sounds like it's strings, but it's played on guitar. Uh, I, I played it really carefully um, uh, be, before preparing for this. And, and uh, at the three to four second mark, Tony hits a bum note. It's kind of interesting, and and then uh, about a second or two later, he's a, he's a little less fluid. There's a little bit of a, a, a an upchuck in it, but anyways, um, it's it's really cool. I love this. Um, what a gorgeous way to do an intro. Um, you know, I think some of Sabbath's uh, you know novelty, quote unquote. Uh, greatest mellow music is is all the mellow music on on Master of Reality. It just creates such a such a great mood. But uh, but yeah, it sounds sounds like a little string quartet, you know, before you get to Children of the Grave, and and the title of it, Embryo, links up with Children of the Grave, right? You've got Embryo first, and then you got Children. You see that? I, I never thought of that after all these years. You're right, uh, Ian. Uh, I absolutely love this, and it shows the the diversity of Tony Iommi. Because on, on one hand, he's known for these very uh, powerful yet simplistic riffs uh, that, that some people might seem as, you know, basic. Uh, but, it's, you know, it's, it's not always in what you play, it's in what you don't play. And and the passion and, and the, the, the anger and, and the force that he has in these riffs are absolutely amazing. But then you get to some of the most beautiful stuff ever, like this and Laguna Sunrise and, I, I mean, you know, Fluff. Amazing stuff. He really shows he's capable of, of so much light and shade. And I, I think he, you need that. It emphasizes the heaviness that is to follow, especially in this case. But... Uh, I, I think this is perfect. When I hear this, though, in, in my in my head, 
I, I hear the sound of eight Deep Purple fans showing up at a Renaissance fair expecting to hear space trucking. And uh, they, they get two hours of this. Uh, but I, 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 love, I love it that it's, it's self-contained, it's short, it doesn't overstay its welcome, but it almost gives you like um, a bit of breath and maybe a false sense of security to what's coming next. And you would see bands do this later. Like I remember the very first Metallica song I ever heard was Fight Fire with Fire. You know, and it starts out, you know, I'd always heard this shit. Oh, Metallica, you hear this band, you know, it's going to blow your, it's the heaviest shit you ever heard, you know? And I hear that. I'm like, yeah, what's this? And then it kicks in and like, oh, what the fuck? You know? And, and then they did it again, you know, with Battery, you know? But, you know, Sabbath was, you know, of course, they're the originators of everything. Well, okay, really blue cheer. Oh, oh, oh you I'm, just said that to get them. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, but, you know, there's, there, there's not too much good in metal that wasn't invented by Black Sabbath. And um, just a perfect, perfect segue to what's coming next. What do you think, Ralph? Yeah, you know what? I don't know what to say. I mean, both of you pretty much, uh, you know, it doesn't wear out its welcome. It's I mean, the only thing I can add is kind of like the calm before the storm, you know, is pretty much all I can say, but uh, that's it. I, I really don't have much, because believe me, what you both said was what I was preparing to say. Uh, so, so Martin, uh, to end off side uh, one, what do you think of Children of the Grave? Love Children of the Grave. Uh, this is this is getting into the, uh, you know, kind of the invention of the heavy metal gallop, which you also hear on hard loving man on deep purple in rock and then iron maiden makes a career out of it later right um but yeah kind of a cool uh environmental semi-environmental but more more like uh like children revolution american hippies kind of thing uh lyric uh, really kind of a cool insightful lyric um it's got the extra little uh you know kind of kind of tom fills going on so kind of a little bit of double track and they recorded this at island um, this is the first time Geezer talks about how on this album they moved up from, you know, up to like a 24 track recording system. They really didn't spend, you know, the guys really don't remember the truth. But I mean, Geezer talks about how we had three days for the first album, five days for the second album, a week for the third album. But Tony talks about, oh, we spent a long time on this. So who knows? But uh, basically uh, and Bill Bill also talks about um how they did get to spend more time and do some uh, some interesting little extra things on it that they didn't on the first two, but that's kind of a cool thing. And then you've got that that weird, creepy children of the grave thing at the end. Um, but uh, but yeah, to me, uh, you know, this is probably uh, my second least favorite um, because ah! only because and half the reason, Sweet Leaf, I, I talked about it that way is because these are the two that I'm the most a little sick of, right? Uh, because uh, they've been played live so many times, and and you know it's a it's an Aussie staple too, right? So, uh, Ian, yeah, I'm I'm so disappointed in you, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> well, light and shade, right? I mean, I have to say this: yeah, the other yeah. songs are super super favorites, right? So, uh, I, I, you're you're such a polite polite Canadian, even when you shit on something that sounds eloquent. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, this is the sound of the motherfucking apocalypse, man. And bring it on. Those drums. Holy shit. You know, that, you know, th this is talk about some headphone shit, man. And you just hear those, 
those drums circling, you know, the the double take. You got Bill playing the basic beat, but then you got him with the with the, with the tom doing, you know, just circling your fucking head. Holy fuck! And that riff and the bass, and don't forget fucking Ozzy on this. Holy shit! I mean, what I will say though, I I, I will agree with Martin a little bit here. Uh, this is a song I initially liked and then I slept on it for a long time because of the overplayed factor. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I took it for granted. And the beautiful thing about when we do these reviews is you go back and you listen to it as you should, as an album, you know, not, not as a single. Uh, and the way these songs flow into each other, it takes on a whole different meaning. You know, Pink Floyd's uh, a prime example classic rock radio has ruined so many Pink Floyd songs um, you know when you take them out of context but when you listen to the album as a whole everything gels makes sense and that's how you should do it that's why I'm not a big fan of Spotify um, you know I, I, I take albums and I load them on my phone you know as complete albums and I like to listen to shit like that because it's just that's the way nature intended it that's the way david lee roth when he created this world said it should be and and i i believe him and it's 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 amazing and, and i've listened to this album probably four times you know leading up to this review and every time this just gets me it's like wow i've kind of taken this for granted because it is so perfect and i i took the overkill factor out of it and how can you not like this band? That's always been a big problem of mine with Randy Rhodes. Okay. And I, I know, you know, we did an episode years ago, years ago, where we did the, the, uh, the Randy Rhodes albums. And I was very drunk. And I was, you know, I, I admit I was a little hard on Randy Rhodes, but Randy Rhodes comes from a school of, you know, I wouldn't even say that. He mixes in, you know, for my taste, there's a little bit too much orchestral shit. You know, that Ingve European, you know, I'm going to mix in some, you know, Mozart with my shit. You know, I like dirt level fucking, you know, give me Angus Young, give me fucking Tony Iommi. You know, th that kind of guitar playing. Um, you know, and then he didn't like Sabbath and like, you know, how can you trust a man who doesn't like Sabbath? Would you let a man who doesn't like Sabbath watch your pets while you went on vacation? I wouldn't give that motherfucker my Netflix password if he didn't like Sabbath. I mean, I mean, come on. I wouldn't leave my wallet around him. No, no. But this song, I, I will say, uh, I, I get what Martin's saying. Again, there is a burnout factor. But much like you've said, Ralph, with, you know, listening to Paranoid, there's so many songs on there that I, I don't want to hear them individually. But if you put on it start to finish, you know, it's just like, it's a fucking masterpiece. And it's Children of the Grave. Ozzy's even gone on record saying it's the most kick-ass song they ever did. And I, I'm hard-pressed to disagree with them. You know, I've always been like, oh, Supernaut's my favorite Sabbath song of all time, but there's just some undeniable, undeniable power in the song. Amazing. What a way, what a way to end a fucking side. Love it.
Yeah, this is. And you're just saying that about Super Not because you remember that quote where uh, one of the guys says that was John Bottom's favorite song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, that that riff. Ever ever since I heard that, and I'm also I'm a huge uh, Frank Zappa fan. And when I found out that was Frank Zappa's favorite Sabbath song, I was like, you know what? I'm right. You know, it, it, it's much like when when I read the Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal. I agreed with you, Martin. I would say on 95% of all your reviews. And that's when I knew you were genius. You were genius. And then I saw that 10 out of 10 out of da- on Down to Earth. I'm like, what the fuck? On a deeper note, you know, uh, he- hearing that it's Frank Zappa's favorite song and John Bonham's kind of, uh, kind of makes you think that possibly neither of those quotes are right. Or one of them's right or one of them's wrong. And they're just, you know, muddling things, right? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I've read them, you know, multiple accounts. But I, I mean, how can you just that rip to fucking Supernaut? I mean, yeah, yeah. Come on, come are, on. That's. Are, are you a fan of Supernaut, Martin? Yeah, definitely. But I'm. I've always been a little bit down on Volume Four for some reason. I find it. Oh, you know, shit. we've had this. We've had this conversation uh, about. Uh, this is a long story. I won't go into it. But the idea of. Um, I. I tend to. I tend to lean towards late seventies versus early seventies with a lot of these classic bands. And the funny thing is, with Sabbath, I always kind of put down a tiny bit. Um, Sabbath one, Sabbath two, and Sabbath four, and I love to death master of reality but my favorite sabbath albums are are would be probably sabotage then sabbath bloody sabbath then master of reality and then again it's you're you're not supposed to do this but but the are you sick of it factor comes in and uh i have way more time for even technical ecstasy and never say die than one two or four well well you know martin both ian and i our 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 favorite is not never say die but it's the one we both listen to the most yeah yeah same kind of thing yeah we we love 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 that album i mean i could never get enough of never say die but um i i I I gotta go back and look what what you gave volume four i can't remember if it was an eight or a ten i used to have this shit memorized but you know uh, uh, ian brought up not too long ago we had a fan paid episode of an album that Ian absolutely hates and I absolutely love. And Ian actually said, you know, Martin gave this album a 10, and it was uh, the first Fifth Angel. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ian, Ian I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, Martin loves this album? I mean, that album is... You gave it a 10? I guess. I guess I did. Um, oh, fuck. Well, the, the time, don't right? Don't quote me. I, I, I was drunk. Maybe I did. <laughs> I did. I, I got I got to find your book. Your book I, I actually have it. It's in my attic right now because I hold on to it. So like, oh my god, it's falling apart. I had to take it out of the bath. I still have the Century Media CD that came with that book. Yeah, I'm sure you remember it was in the back and everything. I have a pile of those. I've started putting them in with book orders. Uh, I was given a couple <laughs> that gave me uh, gave me about a uh, hundred extra CDs. Oh wow. I'm gonna have to ask to slip one in next time I buy a book from you. Yeah, just remind. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't remember saying that he gave it a ten. Maybe he did. Maybe I was just drunk. But I don't know. I mean, the guy. That, Martin gave fucking down to earth a ten, so I'm sure he probably did give it a ten. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I, I I do love that album, but I I will prefer the Dio stuff. But I, I'll get into Children of the Grave, where I I I do suffer. Uh, burnout factor, but not as much as the rest of the planet, because 
every time I hear Stairway to Heaven, I have to hear it in its entirety. And I know, I don't think there's any other burnt out song than that. And, uh, but, you know, Black Dog, I'm burnt out on and stuff like that. But Children of the Grave for me is the greatest Black Sabbath song. And they're it's my favorite band. It's like my favorite song from my favorite band. And yes, I know. I mean, luckily in South Florida, they don't play that on the radio. So maybe that has something to do with it for me not being burnt out on it. But yes, it is a mainstay in Aussie set list and, and Black Sabbath set list. And it's just, it's just the way it builds up, that little build up. And then when it just crushes in and that, what you guys were saying, Tom, I always thought it was like percussions. Um, what Bill does in the song is just phenomenal. And the doomy section in the middle and the creepy ending that as a kid, when I had We Sold It Soul for Rock and Roll, that's just scary. As a little kid, listening to that feedback and the little whispering in it. And what can I say? It's my favorite song from my favorite band. And I never, ever get burnt out on it. One thing I, I forgot to add, I still, I will go to my grave swearing up and down that that is the inspiration for, you know, the Jason, like the ch 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 Oh, yeah. Because I, I heard I heard that, and then I heard, you know, what uh, Henry Manfredini, I believe, is is the man who did all the music for the, the early Friday the 13th. And he said it was like, kill, 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 kill. And he put that effect on it. And I ain't buying that for a second. And even if it is, I still think he was inspired by that. Chow, 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 chow. You know. When we were kids, I used to think it was truth, 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 truth. Oh, what what does it say? Children of the grave. Chill, chill. Okay. Chill. Yeah. 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 That's what I thought. <clears throat> All right. So we flip flip the album over to Orchid. Uh, what do you think of Orchid, Martin? Well, I found my 97 book, so I went 7, 8, 10 for Master Reality, 10 for Volume 4, uh, 10 for Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, 10 for Sabotage, 7 for We Sold Our Soul, um, 10 for Technical Ecstasy, wow, uh, Greatest Hits, I gave it a 7, uh, Never Say Die, 9, so I was alive at last 7, so I was really high in the Aussie years, obviously. Um, Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let me let me just quickly check the fifth angel for you. Uh, fifth. <laughs> fifth angel, fifth angel. So we got. Um, uh no, I gave it a four. Time will tell. Oh, Epic awesome. nineteen eighty nine. I gave it a four. <laughs> See, even okay, I that. okay, so Orchid. Um, Orchid again. Uh, I totally agree uh, with what I said earlier. That uh, that my favorite mellow music uh because on this album it just all creates just such an interesting interesting mood i think it's it's dovetailed into the record better than all the other mellow music sabbath did so orchid blows my mind it it sounds like again i've never done heroin either but this sounds like very heroiny to me um it just sounds like really gauzy and and uh, going down the tunnel and almost like i don't know if you guys have ever had a migraine but when it sounds like your voice is underwater when you get a migraine uh, it's got it's got that really sort of gauzy under a heavy quilt feel uh, this this acoustic that he does on, on Orchid. And uh, yeah, I, I love it to death. I, I think it's uh, and well, love it to death. It's very funereal. Right. Uh, as as is embryo. Um, but I, I just think it's just a beautiful, beautiful, you know, pretty conservative. There's nothing really strange about it. Um, it's just a really beautiful uh, acoustic piece. Yeah. Uh Man, well, I don't know. I only did heroin once, and that was at a rat concert uh, by accident. <laughs> so I, I don't know if this is what heroin sounds like or feels like, but uh, 
I love this. Uh, you know, I put, hey, Richie came back, but he's even better this time. Uh, you know, a little bit more of that Renaissance Fair shit, but God damn, do I love it. Uh, and I think it it takes what you had with Embryo and expands on it. And uh, it is it is one of his best uh, instrumentals. I absolutely love it. And I, again, what it's leading into, you know, a little, you know, false set of safety, you know, a little calm before the storm, uh, but perfect. The great, the light and the shade that they were masters of, uh, along with the Zeppelin, uh, you know, just mixing it up and it's perfectly placed. Absolutely love it. What do you think, Ralph? Yeah, uh, again, what you guys said about Embryo, there's not much I can add to this. Uh, it is, again, kind of uh, not so much Calm Before a Storm because it's a little more, uh, I don't know, how, you know, it's acoustic. Uh, I think at this point, I don't I don't think Tony has added any acoustic on a Black Sabbath song up to this point. Uh, not, not on the first, oh yeah, no, 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 Sleeping Village, I think, has acoustic on it. But... Um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful little instrumental um, that leads into a very bombastic song, that, which Martin obviously likes more than uh, Sweet Leaf and uh, Children of the Grave. Am I correct, Martin? Lord of the, Lord of the World. Yes, definitely. Um, I I really like this one. Again, I, I was just looking at the lyrics, um, and um, this is this is one of those that's uh, a little bit of a darker mood than After Forever. After Forever is as Ian, as you say, a little more striper. Uh, this is this is a little <laughs> more fire and brimstone trouble, right? This is trouble, trouble the skull, trouble run to the light. This is uh, this is almost Sabbath. You know, it, it almost sounds like Geezer's. Uh, Geezer's kind of laughing at the guy a, li- a little bit, saying, "Ah, you chose evil instead of instead of love. Uh, well, are you gonna turn?" He's almost like, um, "Oh, look, look, Satan got you. Uh, you know, you got your comeuppance sort of thing." So this is a little bit, uh, you know, it, it's almost between NIB and and After Forever, but it's definitely fire and brimstone. It's a little more violent Christianity, um, and uh, and I just love the um, love the riffs on it. Um, and and again, I guess I like this one a little more because it's a little more of a deep track than than sweetly for children of the grave. Right on. What do you think, Ian? Oh, absolutely love this song. I mean, the chug on this riff has been ripped off by every stoner rock band worth their fucking salt. Uh, some of Geezer's best work. Uh, just amazing. But yeah, I really think the tempo. And the chug of this is, I mean, to me, it's right there with uh, Beatles' uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy. As far as like a, a pattern, you know, a chug, a little crescendo that, that's ripped off by countless fucking bands. Um, but yet you don't hear it talked about as much. It is a deep cut. Uh, you know, but it's, could you imagine this album without Lord of the World, Lord of This World? And I, I do love the, the angrier Tony's basically saying, yeah, this is the, you know, this is the devil's world. You know, you better hope for something better than this because he's in control of this. I, I think uh, lyrically it matches the music. Uh, it's just angry, dark, and it, it's Sabbath to the fucking core. I mean, this is, you know... If you want me to pick a song that would sum up what they were musically and lyrically, this is a perfect example. 
I love Lord of If I could just interject for a sec, you know, there's a one of the, one of the heaviest things in all of heavy metal history, or one of the heaviest things that Black Sabbath ever did. There's that break where he goes, "Lord of this world," and then these two chords behind when he goes, "Evil Possessor." It's so heavy at that point, right? And, yeah. and then Lord of this world, he's your confessor now, and then it comes out of it and goes back into that that slightly happier sort of thing. But when but when he says "Evil Possessor," that might be the heaviest moment of Black Sabbath of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe correct. You know, this is a song that they never played live till the '97 reunion. They, okay. they never played this back in the day. And yes, I mean you can tell um, Diesel was really into the Bible. I, I read the Bible myself, and there is a a quote in the Bible where God gets all the angels and asks them what they've been doing for the past century or so. And when he got to Lucifer, he said, "All I've been doing is roaming the world." So I think that may have inspired the lyrics to. Wow. But um, yeah, what can I say? Lord of this World is uh, probably the heaviest, uh, along with Children of the Grave, on this, on this uh, album where it is very doomy, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't sound sluggish. But it is, you know, it's just, and what you said about that evil possessor, I never really noticed that, but yeah, that's extremely heavy. Amazing. All right, uh, solitude, Martin. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit and say, I mean, all all five of these heavy songs on this, I, I can't even picture one of them as calling it heavier than all the other ones. They're all so heavy, right? Anyways, but yeah, so solitude is our is our only vocal song on here that is mellow, right? Um, we've got the other two intros, so this is your planet caravan sort of thing. There's a little bit of tinkling and bells and and stuff, so there's a little extra pr- uh, production in it. Um, one of the funny things I'm looking at the lyrics here um, of the whole album, it's like it starts off a little bit. Ha- I'm I'm looking at the last line or two of every song, and uh, and the album starts out kind of happy and ends a little happy, but everything in the middle is is really doomy. So it goes. Sweet Leaf goes, you give you you uh, give to me a new belief and soon the world will love you, Sweet Leaf. After forever ends, or will you still jeer uh, at all you hear? Yes, I think it's too late. So there's like, it's too late, right? Children of the grave ends, or you children of today are children of the grave. So that ends bad. Um, Lord of this world goes, you turn me to all your worldly greed and pride, but will you turn to me when it's your turn to die? Do me ominous, right? Solitude is crying and thinking is all that you do. Memories I have remind me of you. That's bad too. Um, but then <laughs> into the void ends with make a home where love is there to stay. Peace and happiness in every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like Mr. Rogers ends the album, right? Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, solitude is a is a really dark sort of, and then uh, you know this is Tony he gets to play guitar, a little bit of flute, little little bit of, bit of piano on it. So uh, yeah, it's probably my least favorite song. I, I would even say um, it's my least favorite of the three mellow things on it. Okay, uh, Ian. Uh, well, I absolutely love it. I, I think it's so damn beautiful and shows what this band has to offer. You know, they can do the heaviest of the heavy. And and they can do something like this. And Ozzy sounds so fucking beautiful on this. And you know, I was one of those people for the longest time. I was like, oh, that's that's not Ozzy. You know that that that's you know. I always assumed it was Bill Ward singing this for the longest time. Uh, but God damn, does he sound good there? And, and but it's not only Ozzy. I mean, it's it's what Tony brings to the song with mixing 
you know, the piano and the flute and shit like that. Uh, but with Geezer and, and, and Bill bring to it as well, I think it's really good. And I think you need something like this with, with the overall heaviness. Um, you know, they kind of expand from the little instrumental sections to where this is the whole band doing something mellow before they bring you something heavy again. And I'll never forget, I was so disappointed, I believe it was 1990, when the first um, Led Zeppelin box set came out. And it came in that huge cardboard box, and it had this big booklet, and John Paul Jones made a comment about Led Zeppelin 3, and he said, after that, nobody compared us to Black Sabbath anymore. You know, and I'm just like, oh, fuck you. Get off your fucking high horse, you know. Because uh, Sabbath, they are kind of looked at as, uh, you know, it's the association with Ozzy. And, you know, Ozzy's definitely not known as a rogue scholar, you know. And, and their riffs are, you know, I would say more simplistic than what Jimmy Page would do. But it's no less powerful and when called upon, especially, you know, as you would get into the, the Dio era where Iommi could really branch out and show different sides of himself, you know, but, but even, even here, this band is a lot more than just a chug, 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 chug rip, you know, that they had a lot to say and it, it sounds beautiful. I absolutely love this. And I was watching something. I'm a huge, I, I I'm, I'm a fucking Martin Popoff groupie. So I follow everything you do. I watch the Banger TV shit. I watch the the Sea of Tranquility. And I saw where Pete Pardo, and I like Pete Pardo. A lot of people shit on Pete Pardo. I think Pete Pardo's cool. Uh, but he was like, eh, with Planet Caravan. And I think he might have been like, eh, on this song. Like, what's your problem? What's your problem? <laughs> I, 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 I saw a fucking uh, a Van Halen uh, ranking that Pete and Martin were part of. And uh, uh, Pete had a Sammy Hagar album above a Dave album. That's just like, get the fuck out of here. Put your diver, put your diver down, hate Pete Pardo. God damn it. I, I, when he cut his hair, I knew it was all over. Um, but uh, I, I, I absolutely love this song, and I, I think it's important to the album. I, I can see where, you know, it could be Martin's least favorite. I mean, hell, he gave 10 out of 10 to Down to Earth. Um, so I'm not going to begrudge it, but, uh, no, I absolutely love it. And, and I think it's something more Sabbath fans should know. I, I think this is one definitely, if you, if you don't own this album, you don't know this fucking song and it might be a song that people skip, but reevaluate it, check it out, listen to it, enjoy it for what it is and appreciate, you know, what they have to offer. Yeah, I, I would put it in the same boat as you put after forever. I absolutely love it, but it is my least favorite on here. But at the same time, it's the most depressing. Yeah, I mean, they have all these heavy songs about, you know, doom and gloom. But this one being all mellow is even more depressing to me with the lyrics and the vibe. It's almost like the other ones are a warning. And this one is kind of like kill yourself. You know, it's like a uh, somebody, you know, like desperate to hang on to life. And, uh, yeah, I also thought it was Bill Ward for a while because before the Internet, that's what everybody was saying, that it was Bill Ward singing this. And I even heard people say it was Bill Ward on Planet Caravan as well because Ozzy sounds so different. You never hear Ozzy sound like this ever again. 
from, uh, you know, and he does, like, you know, changes. You can tell it's Ozzy. She's gone. You can tell it's Ozzy. But here you can't really tell. He has this different tone in his voice. And uh, I, I love it, though. It's it's very melancholy and uh, depressing. But I, I think it's, at, at the same time, beautiful. I think it's a beautiful song. All right, let's end this with Into the Void, Martin. Okay, I just I just wanted to make a quick point about about Orchid before I'm 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 reading these um, I'm reading these cool books. Uh, there's these two big volumes. Uh, they're called Ecology <laughs> of Souls by Joshua Cutchin, um, and it's about near death experiences, right? Um, and it's it's it, 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 a lot of a lot of the stuff are mentioned, like what do people go through in a near death experience, right? And um, Orchid has this. Um, this kind of swelling bass thing that reminds you of, I don't know if you guys have ever been put under anesthesia where you get that buzzing sound just before you go under like large, large. It sounds like bees. Bees are mentioned in these books. Like uh, uh, bees are like one of these psychopomp things that takes people to the afterlife, blah, blah, blah. But orchid has that sort of buzzing bass swelling thing that, that really sounds like it does sound like that, that uh, near death experience thing, you know, where you die in the operating table and you float up and and you're looking down upon yourself and then you're yanked back into your body and that sort of thing. So I love that about Orchid as well. And that that was kind of that heroiny thing that I that I mentioned, right? It's it really just sounds like that 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 you're dying thing going on where there's these these big bass swells and they're a little buzzing, but I thought that was funny cuz I just read that last night about the bees and people have talked about in near death experiences being um having bees heal you and go in all your orifices and and heal you and send you back into life and it's that buzzing thing that that you get so there's a there's a deep thought on orchid for you but uh, oh, well well i i've been under anesthesia a couple of times and yeah. i didn't hear no i didn't hear no fucking bees yeah I, well, I, 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 I i did hear the voice of graham bonnet and i was like oh fuck i'm going to hell Oh, what did I do? I'm yeah, sorry. I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, shit. What did I do? Yeah, no, I, I definitely had, I, I'll remember it to this day when I had my appendix out at like 12 years old. I remember that anesthesia and it wasn't bees, but it was more like um, all the machines in the, in the hospital, like got super loud for a second. Right. And, and that's, that's a little bit of what, what I, Orchid always reminds me of. So anyways, Into the Void, super, I, it's probably my favorite song on the entire album. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a great heavy one, of course. It's, it's a lesser played one. Um, I just love that riff. I love the, oh, the whole opening sequence to it. Um, you know, Geezer talks about how Ozzy had a bit of a problem singing it because the, uh, the syllables are coming really fast in it. Um, I, I guess when I think of Ozzy's vocal on it, I, I'm not crazy about it because it's got a little bit of a monotone vocal melody to it, a little sing-songy. Um, but yeah, I just love the whole thing, the message uh, and the riffs, uh, and it's it's an amazing way to end the album. So so I guess if we're to add up uh, on this side, we've got an actual two minutes of mellow music, and then we've got a full long song. I think it's 308 or something like that. So this side is... Uh, is a very short side and and it's uh you know almost if you wanted to really look uh, harshly upon it it's got two mellow songs and two heavy songs which is pretty pretty wild for a sabbath album but yeah into the void i think is my favorite uh, my favorite song in the album right on Ian? well uh, uh I, I i hate to do this to uh correct the master but this is actually the longer side uh the first side is 16 minutes and 18 seconds and this side is 18 minutes 
and thirteen seconds. We got thirty-four uh, minutes, so it's a pretty it's a pretty decent album at thirty-four minutes, right? It's oh, not bad. Fuck, yeah. pretty decent. Yeah, pretty. I, I tell you what, better than fucking down to earth. I'll tell you that much. But uh, <laughs> uh, to me, this is this is doom perfection. Uh, this I, I quit smoking weed years ago, years ago. But this gets me high without you know having to. <laughs> Uh, I love this, and, and so much, uh, so much better than the Soundgarden version. Have you guys ever heard the Soundgarden version? Of this? I think so. Yeah. yeah, it's alternate lyrics, right? Oh my God! They replace it with uh, Marlon Brando's acceptance speech from fucking The Godfather. Uh, for real? Uh, well, well, yeah. If if you don't know, uh, you know. Yeah, it was. It was. He wasn't there, wasn't it? Like an Indian that. Yeah, he had, yeah, he had, he had an Indian, a Native American woman step up. And and give this long enduring speech about uh, you know the the suffering of of indigenous Americans and it, which I agree with by the way, but when Soundgarden did this, they the lyrics were a speech given by uh, you know an ancient Indian tribe leader, and and that's all good and noble, but god damn it, send to the void. You don't fuck with it, you know that'd be like like doing uh, you know. Stairway to Heaven, but you change the lyrics to to make it about the ozone layer. You know, get the fuck out of here. Sing the goddamn song. Um, but no, this is just, I mean, that, that riff. I mean, holy fuck. It really is. It, you know, Sabbath as a whole, but this album in particular, I really do see as, as an archetype for what metal would become, especially uh, traditional metal and the new wave of, of British heavy metal. You can hear some stuff. Uh, just in the riffage, um, you know, definitely the the stoner and the doom rock movement, and it's often imitated, you know, and uh, in my opinion, never bested. Uh, they just created not only metal, but you know, a sp- specific type that people just try to try to do but can never duplicate. Much like in the '80s, you know, everybody was ripping off Eddie Van Halen. But nobody could write a song as good as Eddie Van Halen. Uh, it's just musical perfection, and it was so enjoyable going back and listening to this album as an album, you know, start to finish. And and at 34 minutes and 29 seconds, it's it's just perfect. Never overstays its welcome. But at the the end end of the void, I'm like, okay, start off. I want to hear Tony Cough again. This shit is great. Uh, absolutely love it, and what an honor it was to review this album with you two guys. I mean, it's really, really incredible. I love it. If you don't have this, buy it. If you have it, buy it again. Buy it on vinyl. <laughs> you know, that's how it should be heard. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't know. I get a vibe of you know just leaving this planet on this song. You know, it's all how dooming and gloomy this. And I guess that's what you know what Martin brought up. Uh, how the album, uh, the lyrics end on this song is kind of like escaping the planet of this dark planet and kind of like a hopeful ending, but the but not musically. The musically is just as heavy as everything else, and with the crunchy riffs, man. And you know, it's kind of like a proto thrash a little bit, just a little slower, but it has that you know seek and destroy type riff that you know Metallica made famous with the crunchiness. But this is where it all came from, you know. This, you know, you can even go back to the song Paranoid, too, with with that crunchy type of riffage. But 
Yeah, it's uh, my second favorite off the album. I think uh, the best songs on the album is what end each side. And uh, just amazing. I absolutely love Into the Void. One of my favorites. And I could add more, but I'd be sound like a bro broken record with what you both just said. So uh, love it. So uh, you want to give any uh, information on this album there, Ian, before we go yeah. into Pick of the Week? This was released July 21st, 1971. Their last album produced by Roger Bain, who uh, produced the first three albums, uh, went double platinum here in the States. Let's see uh, let's see how this did in Martin's home Canada. It went platinum in Canada. That, that, that's 100,000 in Canada. It's 2 million here in the States. It went yeah, gold. It, in something I, I always uh, kind of look up with these things, and it's kind of a new part of the story about this gold and platinum thing, is, is when these things happen. So one interesting thing about this is when they put this album out, the first two albums had actually both gone gold already, which is pretty good. I mean, this this is a big oh, band yeah. immediately. And then when this album came out, it went gold immediately. But all of them, um, you know, getting to getting to platinum and beyond took a lot longer uh, kind of thing. Uh, but but part of that is because platinum actually wasn't a thing for quite a while. Um, but but essentially, uh, it's it's actually really kind of cool that uh, they had two gold albums under their belts when this album came out. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they were riding the wave of Paranoid, not only the album, but the, you know, the single. And you can see it reflects in the, in the sales, too, because, uh, well, especially here in the colonies, uh, Paranoid's their highest selling, of course, and this followed it. This is the second best selling of the, you know, the original Ozzy era of Black Sabbath. And still to this day, uh, it's second only to Paranoid. So, uh, and, and it went to number eight in the States. I mean, it went to number six in Canada. Uh, you know, number five in the UK. Uh, a big, you know, I never understood, you know, I, when I talked to my dad about Sabbath, especially when I really got into him. And he, he said he gave up after uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was the last one he bought. I'm like, fuck, why did you stop there? You know, and then, then I heard Technical Ecstasy. I was like, okay, you know. But, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's fucking Sabbath. It, it's Sabbath. Absolutely love it. Check it out. You should have it if you don't. Like I said, buy it or buy it again. Just a couple notes I'll add about the album cover. So uh, so they went with this purple and black because it was like the colors of mourning, right? And the original, right. um, it had the, the Master of Reality, the title of the album, Embossed. So Blind Embossed, it's called, right? Where it's where it's bumpy, but right. it's not, there's no ink showing you what's going on. And so later later copies had to have uh, either you printed that in a color, and, and there's like a multicolored versions and whatnot, and some were just lazy and it had nothing. Uh, but also the original was in a in a box top. It had a flap at the top, and it was like yep. a little fat... It was. It had a gusset, right? It it was, it was. Uh, you know, it it squared around the sides, um, so it had that, which was interesting. And it also came with uh, with a big poster of the band standing. I think they're under a bunch of trees or something. It looks like a, a fall scene or something. Um, I can't picture it exactly, but yeah, it came with a poster as well, and uh, and it had the lyrics uh, to the songs on on the back of the of the cover, which was kind of cool. Yeah, you yeah. know, uh, uh, Martin. The I bought the Rhino 180 gram version, and it's exactly like that. The poster, and you flap it on the top. 
they repressed it like that on the Rhino version. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I have the all of the Ozams I have when they they did the 180 gram and the colored vinyl. Yeah. And, and and this one's purple, and I love it. I believe if you go on Discogs, there are actually 200 variations of this album cover mm. uh, world, worldwide with with different color schemes for you know Black Sabbath is in one color, Master of Reality is in another because I, I think what a lot of people know. Uh, you know, the original was the Black Sabbath in purple, Master Reality in black, but then they would do uh, Sabbath in purple and Master Reality in gray, you know, to make it pop more so yeah. people knew what they were buying. But yeah, there's over 200 different color variations uh, throughout the world. Pretty, pretty amazing. That is amazing. All right. All right. So I talked to Martin before uh, for doing a pick of the week. I asked him to recommend an album. Uh, Martin, what do you got for us? Well, uh, in in honor of this album, and because I was working on this episode on the birth of Stoner Rock, I went with uh, Kaya's Blues for the Red Sun, uh, 1992, um, because I figured that if Master of Reality is the true birth of Stoner Rock, um, Blues for the Red Sun would be your your second birth of Stoner Rock. Like, this is the birth, strictly speaking. Uh, you know, in this episode of, of the podcast, I almost argue that the Ground Zero year is more like 1995, where you get, you know, you start getting um, a profusion of things and it starts becoming a scene. You got TP Records and Meteor City and, and Rise Above and what the heck is the other one? Man's Ruin. Uh, you're, you're starting to get a bunch of stoner rock albums at the same time. But, you know, when you reach back a few years and there's a Sleep album and there's, you know, Trouble and Cathedral being a little more stoner rocky than Doomy, uh, but the big one, the big big one, is the second Caius album, Blues for the Red Sun, which is an absolute masterpiece. So uh, I thought it aligned well with this. I almost put in a second one uh, and thought, you know, the great Chris Goss who uh, produced uh, Blues yeah. for the Red Sun, they had a band called Masters of Reality, of course, and, yep. and their 1988 debut produced by Rick Rubin is absolutely amazing, but it's not it's not particularly stoner rocky. It's a little more a little more redneck rocky, I suppose. Um, but uh, but yeah, there you go. Uh, so so the two albums that are the birth of stoner rock, Kai's Blues for the Red Sun in '92 and Master Reality in '71. What what did we do? We reviewed Circus Leaves Town. Which one did we review? Uh, Ian. uh no 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 not circus leaves town we did uh um, demon cleaner yeah uh uh welcome to sky valley that's the one yeah 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 no yeah. great i'm a big, big fan of that big fan of chris goss and his production uh i, I definitely agree with what you say in masters of reality uh, not stoner rock per se musically but uh chris goss is very important in that scene uh, great pick, though. Great pick, Mark. Cool. What's your pick, Ian? Uh, my pick, uh, I, I'm keeping it kind of, you know, similar with this episode. And I'm going with the Tony Iommi solo album, uh, The Depth Sessions, that he did with Glenn oh, Hughes. Yes, yes. And I, I think it's a really, really solid album. Uh, I think Glenn Hughes sounds amazing on it. Uh Tony sounds much more inspired on this than how I feel he sounded on, you know, those later day Tony Martin Black Sabbath records, you know, um, 
you know, forbidden and cross purposes and stuff like that. I, I think he sounds much more invigorated on this. Uh, I do have a bootleg, you know, of the original recordings. The sound quality kind of suffers. When this was released, the drums were re-recorded by Jimmy Copley because the original drummer was Dave Holland. And, uh, and this was around the time he was in all that legal trouble. So they changed it. I would love to hear like a good studio version with Dave Holland's drum because, I mean, you never really heard Dave Holland post-1984. You know, it's all robot drums on turbo and, and ram it down. And you know, I've but never not, seen a single interview with Dave Holland. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And uh but but I would love to hear what, what he added, like him playing like real drums again. But I've also heard reports that uh you know they replaced it because it was basically him slapping his penis against a, a special needs child. Oh. oh but I heard this but I heard the symbol work was great, you know. Oh. Um my but, buddiest uh, Dave, Dave Holland quip is, uh, is I remember reading somewhere because he was getting ticked off with the with, um, you know, Glenn Tipton being like drunk or these guys being stoned on stage playing it. And, and I remember uh, there was one thing where they came off stage after some show in the late 80s and Dave Holland went to him. Glenn, you played like you had one arm out there tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but. But uh, no, I, I do think it's a solid album. I like the follow-up as well, Fused, which which was like a, you know a new recording that he did with Glenn Hughes. But I thought they worked very well together, and it's to me it's much more palatable to accept as you know a Hughes Iomi project than calling it Black Sabbath. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of good songs to be found on there, and uh, it had some traction when it came out. But uh, to most people, I think it's it's probably an unknown album. But check out the Depth Sessions, nineteen ninety six. That is my pick of the week. Right on. You're aware of those albums, Martin? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, did did interviews around that time for that stuff because you know our magazine was was well on its way. So, yep. Are you a fan of Seven Star? Yes, and oddly enough, we have a uh, our, our Contrarians YouTube channel has a Dark Horse panel we're doing on Seven Star tomorrow night. Oh, great! That's nice. nice. I love the Contrarians, by the way. Oh yes, thanks. Yeah, yeah, and, and you got to check out his five songs uh, podcast. It's it's really good too. Yeah, that's I, I great think... audio. I'm up to 164 episodes of that now. Wow! I, I watched the Contrarians the other day. Oh my oh. god, I was laughing my ass off. Uh, it was what if uh, a Kiss Alive album came out after The Elder, and, <laughs> right. and, and, and you were picking all songs from Dynasty Unmasked and The Elder. Yeah. Oh, oh, and I was thinking, like, man, I would love to hear the eight people in the audience. You know, the audience reaction on that yeah, would have yeah. been amazing. <laughs> but no, I, I really enjoy those, Martin. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right, my pick has nothing to do with Sabbath at all, and it, there is a, a pop-off connection because it's a band, and Ian, I'll surprise you by this because you know how I feel about this band. Uh, I never really looked into the band a, a whole lot. Everything I've heard, I never liked from them. And the other day, somebody donated for me to do a track-by-track track for this album, and I was like, oh, no, because it's a double album on top of that of a band I don't Ooh. like. And I listened to it, and I was blown away 
how amazing this album is. And I'm talking about The Clash, London Calling. Which, oh, wow. Yeah, it is such, it's, Martin, it's not really a punk album. No, not at all, no. no. Yeah, because no. it's their third album now. I'm aware of the first two, because my friend back in the day when I was a little kid was really into The Clash, and it sounded very Ramones-ish to me. So, uh, but that's not what really turned me off to them. You know, I rock the Casbah and should I stay or should I go? But when I listened to this and and what I was really blown away, I mean, it's catchy. There's a lot, there's a couple songs. There was two songs. One was kind of reggae-ish. Another one was kind of uh, ska that I didn't care for. But the last song on there was a song I was totally aware of that I haven't heard in decades called Train in Vain. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like it as a kid, and I'm listening to it now, and it's like, wow, this song is so good. And the album is amazing. I mean, other than two tracks I couldn't get into, I ordered it. It's just a phenomenal album. And, and wow. you, know, you know how I've always complained about The Clash. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think uh, London Colin is a brilliant, brilliant album. And I've heard Martin talk about it in the past, and uh, but I never gave it a chance, and then I was kind of forced to to do a track by track and I had to listen to all the songs and I was just like one after another I was like I can't believe how good this is and it's not a punk album you know it's what just, does it go up against <laughs> oh I can't remember now what it was but it won <laughs> oh wow against an album I like and it ended up winning it wow. was another double album now I can't remember for the life of me what it was but yeah, London Calling, The Clash, I, I, I've been awakened. Is there anything like that, Martin, uh, afterwards? Oh, definitely. I mean, so first of all, the, you're, you're wrong about the first two. There's nothing Ramones-ish about them. Um, and the second one's pretty heavy. You might like the second one. It's possibly even my favorite. But if you like London Calling, after that, they made a triple album called Sandinista. And, mm -hmm. and it basically sounds like London Calling. Oh wow! Okay, I'll definitely have to look into that. Yeah, I, I would, I would disagree. I'm, I'm a big uh, Clash fan as well. Uh, I, I do agree with the second album, produced by Sandy Perlman, who produced you know a lot of Blue Oyster Cult, of course. Um, I don't think Sandinista is as strong as London Calling. No, and uh, and I was being very short about it, saying it sounds like I mean, but basically it's got that bewildering amount of variety. Every Clash fan yes. says. They they could have they could have taken off a whole record and and if they could make their own version of it, they could make a record better than London Calling. That's what every fan says. But you're yeah. Ralph, you're, you're definitely going to notice there's some some real filler on it to make it a triple album. Okay, but it has like those catchy songs like London Calling has. Oh yeah, I mean you like I say, I mean once you're a deep Clash fan, you'll you'll be making your own double album out of the triple, and you'll say, man, my my double album, my personal double album is even better than London Calling. Wow. Yeah, I I kind of I don't know, man. Maybe I, maybe I have to give Sandinista another chance. Maybe it was just too much to digest. Uh. As far as Ralph's taste, but I'm, I'm surprised that Ralph even liked London Calling. But I mean, I do love the variety on that record, you know, and, and there's so much different stuff, I think, is is the charm of it. Uh, but who knows? Fuck it. I can't believe you, you like London Calling. So maybe you might like Sandinista. Uh, but I would say, I would say not not counting, uh, you know, cut the crap, of course. Uh, I would I would have Sandinista as my least favorite, actually. 
I, I would give a slight nudge to uh, uh, the fuck? Uh, Rock the Casbar album. I, I almost combat, dislike. Combat I, I almost dislike Combat Rock as much as I dislike Cut the Crap. I mean, and both of them are not that low for me. They're both kind of like fives to sixes out of ten. So I I would go probably the second one. Which Ralph, like I say, it's it's pretty heavy and rocky, and it's only a single album. I bet you would like uh, give them enough rope. Yeah, but, uh, I, I I my friend lent me it, but I was I was I I, I was probably thirteen. It's the right. one with the cowboy on the cover, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. It's it's uh, red and yellow, and it's got this kind of like grainy photograph thing on it. But uh, yeah. but it, it's quite rocky, and it's almost like it's almost like the heavy stuff off of London Calling. The very little that there is, it's heavier, but as cool and heroic and Springsteenish and Graham Parkerish and Van Morrisonish kind of as uh, as you know. You know, messianic, U two ish, almost, right? I mean, that's kind of what London Calling is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's like messianic, right? Um, and and you you kind of get that feel a little bit from the heavy, you know, from from most of uh, giving enough rope too. Well, uh, let me let me ask you this, Martin. Uh, when it comes to the first album, would you recommend the UK or the US pressing? I think the U the US uh, they improved it by putting all those uh, you know excellent excellent non LP singles on it. I, th I think it's a I think it's a little bit better. Well, I looked it up, Ian. You know what it won, won against, and you'll be surprised because you know I love this album. It won against Fear the record. What? what how, how in the fuck do you even line that up? Yeah, it, it has the same with the tracks. Does it? Yeah. I guess because Fear has a lot of short songs, you know. True. Holy Actually, fuck. I had to add "fuck Christmas" on it, but yeah, it, it was just missing one track, so I added a bonus track to it. But Interesting. Yeah. And it was well, I, and and "Fear" is an album I've lived for for decades, and I've loved that album for decades. "London Calling" I only heard once, and it was like it won. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I was just I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I was like, first of all, this is not punk. And it's catchy and it's like really great songs, man. I just couldn't get into the reggae one. There was a reggae-ish one and there was like a ska one. Am I correct? Like there was two, only two songs on there like that. Uh, well, probably, I don't know. I think there might even be four, four and a half-ish kind of. I mean, London well, like, like, itself is, is wrong, a little like Wrong on Boyle, I think you might be thinking is the yeah. ska one. Probably. Guns of Brixton. Guns of Brixton too. Yeah, yeah. love Guns of Brixton. Holy shit. No, hey, I, I'm I'm just happy, Ralph. I, I'm happy you discover it. You know, that's one thing I've kind of noticed. We've been doing these fan episodes, uh, and I, I notice Ralph and I are kind of on the same page, even though it's totally different. It's the ones that I don't know and have to study. I'm less open to, and the same with Ralph. But the ones he knows, he's like okay with, and I'm like that. It. Sometimes it's harder the older you get, I think, to... Uh, I, I think you have less patience for shit. Yeah, but, you know, when you're a kid... I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, if it ain't metal, it's crap, you know? Right. So, like, Train in Vain is a great example. Like, I absolutely love that song. Because, you know, listen to it, I am familiar with it. And now, you know, with my older age, it's like, I get it. Where back then, I wouldn't give something like that a chance, you know what I'm saying? You know my problem, guys, about this having less patience thing. I almost have less patience for anything new or recent or from the last twenty years. But 
if if I'm forced to go back to play something from the 80s or the 70s that I know very little about, I have more patience for it because it's from my era. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. Well, this was great, Martin. Did you have fun? Yeah, this was very cool. It's a long one. It's epic. I've lost my voice, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my. Oh my. Usually, hey, we cut out doing the news with you. Usually, we do the news for an hour before we get in the show. Yeah. yeah. No, but that's about my limit. So. <laughs> yeah, but but I I, I just want to say you know before we let you go, we usually do a fan of the week, but in this case, you know, I want to do a guest of the week, and and thank you for doing this. And something you know, I was such a fan of your writing. And then in the last couple of years, you know, when I've, I've seen you on, you know, you know, YouTube, be it Sea of Tranquility or, or Banger TV, I was so pleasantly surprised to see that you're just as cool in person as you are in your writing. And uh, I really can't thank you enough for doing this. And, and again, such a huge fan. And I implore everybody to check out anything that you do because you put your heart into everything. And that's all you can ask for. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, you know, the, the thing with doing all that video stuff is is people don't get to see what you don't know anything about, right? So it, so it always looks really impressive, but there's there's a lot of stuff I know nothing about, so. Yeah, like Rainbow. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. And thank you so much for your time, man. We really do appreciate this. No worries. Thanks again. You enjoyed this episode. Come back next week. When we have Woodward and Bernstein show up on the show, and we're going to talk about Guar. That's next week on the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast.